This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and looking forward to spending this next hour with all of you. Um, Today's show in our format, um, I'm going to be chatting with you about several different topics in the first half of the show. And I will be ready to take questions in the first half of our program. Just so we get it aside, the phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also email me at any time during the week at info at alessimd.com. Today is our 19th consecutive program dealing with various aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our guest in the second half of today's program is going to be Dr. David Grew. Dr. Grew is a radiation oncologist, and he's going to talk to us about the importance of cancer screening and getting these tests done even in the face of the pandemic. So it's really important that you get tested as scheduled, but he's going to talk to us about the precautions and what we're doing to make that safe. As you've heard on this station, the statistics are astounding now, uh, centering around COVID-19. Here in Connecticut, we have over 44,000 confirmed cases and over 4,000 deaths. But it's really the United States numbers. We now have over 116,000 dead Americans from COVID-19. Now, the sad part is these numbers are rising as we are opening up the economy and opening up services. So the argument has been in some states that, well, the number of cases are going up because there's increased testing. Well, I'll buy that. I mean, we are doing a better job of identification. Remember the three principles, identification, isolation, contact tracing. So we're doing a better job of identification. But the real number to watch is the number of hospitalizations, right? So this is not just people who are being diagnosed. These are people who now require hospital services. I had a a conversation last night with a colleague in Dallas, Texas, and he said that he's really blown away by the fact that things are opening up. People think it's back to normal. And their hospitalization rate just keeps rising. And in fact, he felt that the biggest rush, so they started opening up five weeks ago, and they're starting to see this rush. Now, this week, they're going to start opening up churches. One thing we've learned about this virus, that one of the true epicenters for viral spread has been churches, even in South Korea, where they've done a great job. But churches have been a place where there's been a lot of spread. So his take on this is that in two weeks, we're going to see this climb even more. 
and that we're really at the nadir. We're at the bottom of that rise right now that's going to be coming as far as Dallas, Texas is concerned. I am happy that we've moved slowly here in Connecticut and continue to move slowly with respect to this. You know, I was on a, another talk show this week, and the talk show host said, well, I guess you're against reopening things. And I said, no, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm happy to see us start progressing, start reopening, and getting back to some level of normal activity. But the real question is, are we doing it with the right controls? And if we see this spike, as they are in Dallas and Arizona and other states, are we willing, will our elected officials have the fortitude, the absolute courage to dial it back and say, okay, we now have new restrictions, not necessarily shut it all down, but to start dialing it back. That's going to be the real question here. But as you're reopening, people seem to have forgotten about using masks and trying to isolate as best they can with social distancing. A study published in, from Cambridge this week talks a little bit about the r naught. If you'll remember, that's the number where we calculate the average number of people who can be infected by one person with the virus. And you need to get that number to less than one. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in relation to the flu later on. But their study showed that in their modeling, if you used mass over an 18-month period, then you would isolate sufficiently. So go about your normal activity, but when you're outside, when you're inside other than your own home, when you're at work, you're wearing a mask. And in doing so, you could stop any resurgence of this virus that we are expecting in the fall. The goal here is not to have to wear masks the rest of your life. We want to wear masks until we have a treatment and until we have a vaccine. That's the goal line here. If we're going to use a football analogy, we have to get to that goal line. So I'm a little bit dismayed about folks who I've observed who think, well, we're reopening, so things are back to normal. Why do I have to wear a mask? I have rights. Uh, remember that you wear a mask to avoid spread to other people. The World Health Organization is this week came out with a statement that asymptomatic spread appears rare. They confuse things to no end. What they fail to discriminate in is the difference between asymptomatic spread and pre-symptomatic spread. Asymptomatic spread is when people don't have symptoms and never get symptoms, okay, but they have the virus. Pre-symptomatic spread, which is what we are really seeing a lot of, is people who don't feel sick, but eventually they do get symptoms and become ill. So there is a period that we think goes from anywhere between 4 to 14 days before someone becomes ill that they spread the infection. The asymptomatic group is a relatively small group. So what they're saying is asymptomatic spread appears rare. I guess I could buy that, but they don't address the issue of pre-symptomatic spread. So people without symptoms show up, 
for work. They're in an elevator with you. And they should be wearing a mask because they can spread the infection. And don't forget, the spread is through your mouth and nose. Those are the targets. That's what emits the virus. That's what accepts the virus. This day in medicine, June 13th, in 1870, Dr. Jules Bourdais was born. He's a Belgian bacteriologist and eventually won the Nobel Prize. He discovered something called complement fixation to help identify various bacteria. Uh, specifically, Bordetella pertussis, whooping cough. He identified that bacteria and actually started a method for immunization. Another great thing happened on this day in 1231. St. Anthony of Padua died. St. Anthony of Padua was a Franciscan friar, and although he is a doctor of the church, he was not a medical doctor, although he spent much of his life as a Franciscan working with the poor of Italy. And today is his feast day, which is a major feast in, in many countries. And I'm proud to say he's also my patron saint. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit about some of the misinformation that's out there. We want to debunk the misinformation, give you all the facts so that you could move forward and keep yourself safe. Again, the phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I, I was at a social event uh, this week, and someone came to me and said, uh, you know, Doc, what, what's the difference between this and the flu? Okay, there were 94,000 people who died from the flu last year. And what's the difference? And I, I thought we've gotten rid of that argument or that information, but I've heard it several times, so I think it's worth addressing. I mean, first thing you have to understand is when we talk about deaths from influenza seasonally, the number of deaths from the flu are an estimate. They are estimated. They are projections. They are modeled. Whereas COVID-19 deaths are confirmed deaths. These are deaths with people who have the disease. And just the, the sheer enormity of this. I mean, if you looked at the, the most deaths in a week from the flu, you're looking at 750 deaths in the worst week possible from the flu. In COVID-19, we're looking at about 15,000 deaths per week in the month of April when we looked at this. But we talked a little before about the r naught that spread, right? Because that's the key. If someone has the virus, how many people will they likely, on average, spread it to? For the flu, it's 1.3. As opposed to COVID-19, where it's between 2 and 2.5. So it's almost twice as much spread that you're going to get from COVID-19. When we look at hospitalizations, another number we talked about earlier, that's key. How many people get hospitalized from the flu 
and how many get hospitalized from COVID-19. The number is only 2% from the flu. So only 2% of all the people who get the flu require hospital care, whereas with COVID-19, it's 19%. So again, we're talking big differences here. And probably one of the biggest differences is the fatality rate. Really, the fatality rate from the flu is 0.1% or less, whereas in COVID-19, it's as high as 3.4%. One of our biggest differences is treatment and a vaccine. With the flu, we have at least four different treatments that people can take at the onset of the flu to either stop the flu or get rid of the symptoms, make them feel better sooner. Tamiflu and, and drugs like this, antivirals like this. We also have a vaccine. Now, the vaccine's about 60% effective. Um, and when you look at adults who are vaccinated, it's about a little over 45% of all adults get vaccinated. Whereas with COVID-19, we got zero treatments, zero vaccine. We have no defense. We have no way of taking an attack against this virus. So the real thing is we've had more deaths in a shorter period of time than anything. And that has overtaxed our healthcare system. So enormous numbers of differences between these two viral infections that have to be maintained. One of the other uh, discussions, and we talked a little bit about earlier, was testing. Now, a lot of these tests have been have gotten a bad rap. They, so the best test we have is when they put the nasal swab in your nose and essentially go way up into the nasal passage to get a sample. Doing this is not that easy. And in fact, the New England Journal of Medicine put out a video for physicians to teach us how to get the sample properly. I was told by a patient this week that she went somewhere and got a test and they just handed her the swab to stick in her own nose. Now, I have to tell you, that's like sticking something in your eye. OK, you don't want to do it. So when she was retested at UConn before coming to my office for a procedure, that test is done by a professional, by a medical professional. And she said, that test went way up my nose. She said, so one of the thoughts is some of the false negatives are because people are not getting the test done properly. So it is important that someone else do the test for you. Uh, especially if you're having that nasal swab test. So that may be a reason why we're getting the false negatives. We talked a little bit about treatment a little while ago, and obviously we're sitting around waiting for an effective vaccine. And that's been a big issue. We're hearing stuff every day about new trials and, and what's coming out. Uh, we had Dr. Peter Hotez on our show to talk a little bit about that. Uh, his estimate was by the time we have a vaccine that is ready for huge consumption, we're looking at the end of 2021. This week, Dr. Fauci essentially supported that. He thought that by the beginning of 2021, 
we will have at least one vaccine, maybe several vaccines, which is our hope. But are they going to be ready for a huge consumption across the country? And the, probably no. They'll probably some limited use. Um, there's going to be some directed use as to who should get the vaccine. Uh, and we're going to learn a lot about the vaccine as we move along. But on the upside, we're working for a treatment of COVID-19. The best treatment that we've heard so far, other than convalescent plasma, right? We've had shows and talked about convalescent plasma, where you take blood from someone who has it, transfuse the antibodies in people who are critically ill. Studies are now being done with that in people who are mildly ill to see if it has an effect. But remdesivir still shows us the most promise right now. Remdesivir is an antiviral medication administered intravenously. We're using it now in combination with other drugs for people who are seriously ill with COVID-19. And that shows a small but clearly beneficial effect. I think among the more promising treatments is a treatment being put forth by a company called Regeneron. And Regeneron makes monoclonal antibodies. They make antibodies against certain viruses. And what they are putting into effect is a combination of monoclonal antibodies that they already have that are effective against COVID-19 in the lab. What's interesting about this model is the clinical trial will now look at people who not only are seriously ill, so people who are on respirators and are seriously ill, but also people who are just developing mild symptoms of COVID-19. They're positive, starting to develop symptoms. Can you stop them from progressing to more severe lung disease? And they're going to use it in people who are at risk. So first responders, frontline workers, nurses in emergency rooms, physicians in emergency rooms will also be part of that trial. So I think that all holds great promise. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. David Grew. We're going to be talking about cancer screenings in the era of COVID-19. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And my guest today is Dr. David Grew. Dr. Grew is a radiation oncologist. He's a medical doctor who trained at Tulane University and at New York University as well. He works with the Connecticut Radiation Oncology Group, and he's at St. Francis Hospital. Dr. Grew, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Dr. Grew, welcome to the show. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. All right, great. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, let's start by, can you explain uh, to our listeners a little bit about what radiation oncology is and what attracted you to that area of specialization in medicine? Sure, yeah. So radiation therapy is basically using a high-energy high, high energy X-ray 
in a focused way to target it at cancer cells to cure cancer. Uh, it's different and commonly confused with diagnostic radiology, which is what we commonly think about as you know going to get an X-ray or a CAT scan or an MRI. Radiation therapy is used pretty much exclusively for cancer as part of a curative treatment or sometimes a palliative treatment to help cancer patients who have a problem like pain. And, and what made you want to do this? So when I was a medical student at Tulane, I was doing my internal medicine rotation, and we admitted a, a patient to the hospital who we were working up for a probable tumor. And we were working with her for about a week, and we finally got the answer, and then we discharged her. And I was very frustrated by this because I was very in invested, and I wanted to kind of move on with the next step, so I followed her path once she was discharged. And I went to the oncology meetings where her case was discussed. And I was just really fascinated by the discussions in a multidisciplinary setting where you have a surgeon, a medical oncologist who does chemotherapy, a radiation oncologist who does x-ray therapy, as well as the pathologist who review biopsies. Everybody's together in one room to discuss a single patient's case. That's very rare in medicine. And so that really sucked me into the field of oncology in general. And then within the room, I kind of was looking at each specialty, and it was the radiation therapists that kind of were bringing uh, an anatomic and surgical mindset to the disease, but with using a very technologically advanced approach through x-ray therapy. And that really drew me in. And um, on top of that, you know, the field of oncology allows for the physician and the patient to establish a very unique, uh, just emotional connection on a very on a very basic level. That that was always very attractive to me. That that can happen in any field of medicine, but I feel it's particularly meaningful in the field of oncology. Uh, boy, that's a great story because it, it when I talk to physicians about how they got into their field, it's usually there's this one case or this one situation that kind of a light bulb goes off, and that certainly was the case with you. Sure uh, was. Yeah. Let's get to cancer screening. Okay, so radiation oncology, it is one part of this is treating, but really cancer screening has really taken a dramatic effect on mortality and death from cancer. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of screening tests these days? Yeah. So if we look at the cancer statistics over the last three decades or so, we've made tremendous progress in terms of improving cancer mortality or the likelihood a patient who's diagnosed with cancer dies from that cancer. We've, we've reduced cancer mortality over the last three decades by about 30%. That's an enormous leap forward. Um, so I, I think we need to just sort of acknowledge that. Why did that happen? You know, in some ways, for sure, that's because of advances in treatments, whether it's surgery, chemotherapy, new, new drugs to the market, or advances in radiation therapy technology, for sure. But a large part of that progress comes from rolling out increased screening programs. And what that allows us to do with screening, we can 
detect cancers at an earlier stage when they're much more likely to be cured. So now we're in this, uh, well, first of all, let me get, which do you think the screening procedures, where have we had the, the most impact? Has it been from colonoscopy? Has it been from mammography? Has it been from checking PSAs? What, what do you think has had the most benefit and most effect on uh, reducing mortality from cancer? Well, I, I think it's all, all the ones you mentioned and um, probably one of the most bang for our buck is, is with pap smear screening for cervical cancer. Really? To give you some perspective on how important that is, can, cervical cancer is a leading cause of cancer death in the developing world internationally because you don't have pap smear screening routinely. Um, that is that is not the case here in the United States because we have uh, very uh, well-defined screening protocols. And so we're able to identify cervical cancers before they even happen when they're pre-cancerous lesions. Um, so so that, that's one enormous area. Um, and then for sure, colonoscopy uh, has been a big driver of early diagnosis that is saving lives. There has been some controversy about the role of PSA and, uh, to a lesser extent, mammogram. When I say controversy, I mean different organizations recommend slightly different ages for using those kinds of things. Um, but to be sure, there's no question that it leads to earlier diagnosis with PSA and mammogram. I think it's important for your listeners to understand, though, for any of these screening studies, they should really be a, a conversation that they're having with their primary care physician to, to better understand what the data is, when it's appropriate for, for your listeners to themselves enroll in these kinds of screening studies. Oh, absolutely, because it, it changes regularly. And I, I think people have to realize that these are guidelines and they're only there. It's based on the individual themselves. Um, so exactly. I think you raise an important and, you know, point. Exactly. There's, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. So some patients who have a, a family history, say, um, they may qualify for um, screening studies at an earlier age with, with more aggressive studies. So, for instance, with, with uh, screening for breast cancer and patients who have a, a family history that carries with it a certain risk of developing a breast cancer, they would likely be screened at, number one, an earlier age, and number two, perhaps with a different modality like MRI instead of a mammogram. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back with my guest, Dr. David Groove from St. Francis Hospital. We want to talk about uh, testing in the era of COVID-19 from the standpoint of COVID-free zones and the impact COVID has had on screening tests for cancer. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and as we enter this last segment of our program, my guest today is Dr. David Grew, who is a radiation oncologist at St. Francis Hospital and part of Connecticut Radiation Oncology. Uh, David, before the break, we were talking a lot about screening tests for cancer. But 
are a lot of people delaying getting these screening tests now in the face of this pandemic? Uh, and how much of a danger does that present? Yeah, we are worried about that. Um, if we take a step back and uh, just think about the the dangers of a pandemic, we, obviously this virus and the threat it poses to vulnerable individuals is, is a serious threat. But there's another threat that's a little bit more insidious, which is when patients who could safely access medical care decide to forego that and then in sort of unwittingly put themselves at risk for serious disease or death from another cause. And so when we think about this, we think about it sort of being deaths that occur because of the pandemic, but that were otherwise preventable. They're not related directly to COVID, but they're indirectly related because regular folks were afraid to go and access the medical system. And and I, I understand that because, you know, the, the news is not so fun to watch these days. But what we want to reassure people is that it is now safe to, again, begin to encounter the medical system to start doing these these kinds of tests again. Um, and I think we we can talk today about, um, you know, some of the things that are happening in our system at Trinity Health of New England, as well as several others around the state. Uh, when we look at this, uh, have you seen people get delayed even in their treatment? So people who are scheduled to have uh, radiation therapy, are those people putting off treatment as well? We have generally not done that. And that is because we have put in place rather aggressive infection control protocols. So when, when a new patient comes to see us with a new diagnosis of cancer, they're met at the door with um, a screening personnel who's going to ask them about history and certain risk factors for COVID. They'll get their temperature taken. They're asked to wait in a socially distanced waiting room to decrease foot traffic for now. We're trying to limit visitors, although we're looking forward to starting to ease some of those restrictions as the infection rate continues to decline in our state. Um, and then once they come in, you know, we have a universal masking policy. And so we've found that with all of these measures, we've been very, very effective in controlling the spread of this virus in our, in our cancer center, in our hospital. And so we have not delays treatments. There are some very unique cases like uh, very low-risk prostate cancer or some women with very low-risk breast cancer where it's perfectly safe to delay treatment by uh, a month or two. And, and some people probably uh, were safe to do that in the midst of the surge back in March and April. But now that's not necessary. And so we're not doing that anymore. Are you particularly worried about your patients who are undergoing radiation therapy in this era of the pandemic until we get a vaccine? You know, uh, we were early on because there was so much of, of, about how this disease worked was unknown. I'm not so much anymore. Um, and that is because of the infection control protocols that we've talked about. And I've also just been very reassured by what I see when I'm not at work. Um, 
I see that average citizens are are really playing ball with the recommendations as far as distancing and and masking when you're out in public, especially when you know you're going to encounter crowds like at a store um, and you're not able to keep that distance. People are wearing masks and we're understanding more and more now just how important those kinds of measures are. Um, and with all of these measures in place, you know, we see every day you open that newspaper and you can see that the hospitalizations continue to decline for several weeks in a row now. And the positive uh, test percent and among all the individuals that get tested in Connecticut continues to stay quite low. And so I've been very reassured by all that. And while we need to maintain our vigilance with our cancer patients, it's not something that uh, really uh, terrifies me the way that it did at the beginning of this pandemic. Do you think Connecticut, do you think we're somewhat of an outlier from the standpoint that when you talk to your colleagues around the country in the sense that um, we've done really well with this uh, compared to other states we for a variety of reasons. Um, but um, do you think we're an outlier? Do you think people in other states are a little bit more worried about uh, the vulnerability of their patients? I, I, I do hear that. I mean, I think they're... I do as well. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. Um, you know, it... It's, we're seeing now in the last few days a lot more headlines about, oh, my goodness, is this a second wave coming, this and that. Um, I think that what we're seeing is that this was a disease that really hit the major metropolitan areas very quickly and very hard. Uh, and now I don't think what we're seeing so much is a second wave. It's more just sort of the, the long tail of the first wave which is now infiltrating sort of the, the more suburban and rural areas of this country. And, and that's probably what's happening. So I'm actually, we do hear about other areas getting hit at later dates than we did. But I think if, again, if, if people basically play ball and participate with the, these, you know, rather modest measures, um, then they can contain this infection just as well as we did in this area. In the last minute, and I'm only going to give you, we only have such a short period of time. What do you think the, the, the newest thing we're going to hear in the future in the field of radiation oncology is? What's the coming thing that our listeners may not have heard about? Sure. So where we're making the biggest impact right now is with um, a, a newer technology called stereotactic radiation, um, which uses a few days, usually one to five days of treatment instead of the typical five to seven or eight or nine weeks of radiation, which is a curative therapy for many cancers, and including cancers in, in the tumors in the brain, uh, in the lung, uh, in the liver, in the pancreas, in the prostate, and other metastatic tumors of all different organs. This treatment is non-surgical, and uh, it's an outpatient procedure. So it's a very effective treatment with very few side effects that uh, is a great option for especially older patients who have other medical issues who may not safely be able to have surgery. And um, so I think that that is 
probably the the most encouraging area of technology in the radiation oncology field. And um, I would encourage your listeners, if they themselves or if they have a loved one or a friend who has a cancer, to to ask their uh, medical oncologist or their surgeon whether or not they may be a candidate for that kind of treatment. It's called stereotactic radiation. Dr. Groot, thank you. Thank you for your time today, and thank you for all you do for our patients here in Connecticut over at St. Francis Hospital. Thanks again, David. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. That was Dr. David Groot, my guest today, and I thank him for his time. I also want to thank Mike Olko, who's been on the board today, allowing me to do this program from home. Uh, Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we're going to be chatting with my good friend, Dr. Michael Rajkumar, who's an infectious disease specialist at Hartford HealthCare. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about coronavirus and how we move forward from here. Next up on WT is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.